Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Podcast, where we share stories from amazing leaders just like you and me. We break down myths of leadership, imposter syndrome, and we ask what brave feminine leadership means and does it need to change? All of these interviews were originally recorded in video format. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Brave Feminine Leadership for news on when new video series will be dropping. It's wonderful to meet you. Drop me a note if the content resonates. Melissa at bravefeminineleadership.com. Let's get brave. Welcome to our Brave Feminine Leadership interview series. This morning, I'm going to introduce you to Kate Mason, and I'm absolutely thrilled to have you join the conversation, Kate. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Melissa. It's a thrill to be here. Kate, um, I'm going to run through a brief bio um, before I then ask you to expand on a little bit of that for us. So... Um, Dr. Kate Mason has spent her career running communications functions at Google, YouTube and Khan Academy, and most recently as head of global communications at Medium in San Francisco. Four years ago, Kate founded her own boutique firm, Hedgehog and Fox, and works with startups all the way through to major global brands, sharpening and articulating the stories of these companies and, and their leadership. Kate also runs a global coaching program called Amplify, where she focuses on elevating women's communication so they can lead with impact and authority. Can't wait to get into this conversation. And um, <laughs> let's start, Kate, with um, anyone who hasn't had the pleasure of coming across you before. Tell me about yourself. Oh, that's a wonderful question. And thank you for such a generous intro. Uh, I suppose where I am now looking back, I'm a teller of stories in some ways. Um, I started my uh, trajectory not heading towards a tech company in the slightest. I'm non-technical, my background is humanities. Um, and I finished my PhD in English and was sort of thinking, I wonder where I'm gonna go next. Is it academia or is it somewhere else? And by some beautiful twists and turns of serendipity ended up at Google. Um, as I thought, probably the least technical person there, which is probably still true, <laughs> um, and found a love of sort of fast moving, fast paced companies with really smart people. And I guess found a bit of a niche as a translator, somebody who could uh, get up to speed relatively quickly with a complex thing and be able to translate that outwards. And that's really what I've spent um, my career doing in different types of tech companies. So who are you, who you are? You know, go back even before. So you've done a PhD in English. Mm -hmm. Why are you who you are? What came before that? Wow, what a question. <laughs> um, I suppose I've always been motivated by curiosity and following things I really loved. Um, I, and, and I suppose that goes back to when I was quite young as well, but certainly from university onwards, I started off doing an arts and law degree, thinking very clearly I'll, I'll probably be a barrister. That was an early wish. And I got to law school and realized, I don't think I'm gonna enjoy practicing law. I don't think it's for me. I love some of the ways of thinking um, but it didn't resonate with me in the way that I had hoped. Mm. So I did my honours in English and thought that's actually where my passion really is. I love writing. I love uh, finding patterns between different things and literature. And so that 
I suppose in some narrow sense led me to think, well, that's what I will do. I'll be, you know, a, a, a lecturer um, in English and you get there by doing a PhD. So at, at that time it was quite transactional, quite sort of linear or, or so I thought um, and quite delightfully I've been opened up to a lot more different directions but always led I think with that curiosity and with staying fairly true to things that I thought both that I was good at and that I could kind of be useful in. I think that's a really important uh, conversation because you know a lot of people think there's just one path to get to where they want to go and things like that and so mm. as you look back on you know where where you are now with your own business and there's lots of questions I want to ask about that but mm. when you look at where you are right now does it in retrospect does it seem you were always heading there or you know it's, like it's so funny you say that I was just talking to someone this morning and and uh saying I could not have predicted this path in the sense of imagining it when I was really young. Mm. But if I do look backwards, yes, everything I've done has sort of been this strangely appropriate building block. And, and maybe everyone says that in their career. I, I don't know. But um, I think the first one for me was actually I started debating when I was really young um, and that sort of fueled this way of thinking and um, again, curiosity to learn things, but also strategy to kind of how to how to put them together in this really compelling way. And uh, that's exactly what I do now. And I started learning that when I was 10. So in some ways, these beautiful patterns kind of recur over time, you know, with I think people's careers and choices. And you start realizing, oh, that's not just a hobby or something I like. It's actually something that's quite integral to me or how I think and function and actually I'd like to do that professionally if I can. You're being very humble about this debating. Um, so let's talk about that because I, I think it's it's a fascinating, um, to me it's a fascinating part of your journey and has built some skills that, um, you know, I think if we stereotype um, some female leaders and some of the challenges that they have and one of those is about finding their voice um, I really feel like that debating space is um, amazing. I think it's truly one of the best things I ever did. Um, and I, I, I think there's, uh, you know, certainly in the news today, there's a lot about uh, debating environments being sort of pretty adversarial or unfriendly, um, fairly elite. Like there's, there's definitely a lot of problems with it as an institution. Right. But certainly as... Um, skills that I think everyone should have a sense of both being confident to articulate and self-advocate which is essentially what debating helps you do with someone else's argument mm -hmm. you know it's not about you or your beliefs it's about the side of the house that you're sitting on um, and having that sort of logic or way of grouping your thoughts together is something that I think is probably most people think, oh, you must go into politics or law. But I think it's so broadly applicable to really any type of um, job that you might pick up. And certainly my debating friends and peers of the time are all in all, all sorts of various roles in lots of places that really just require the ability to marshal your thoughts. And what, and ranking, what ranking did you get to globally in this? Oh, well, I, <laughs> look, I did very well and... Uh, 
Um, I certainly have peers who did much better, um, but I was I was lucky enough. I was on the world schools debating team when I was finishing school, and and we actually won the world championships um, with a, a beautiful team. Um, and then I went on to do a lot of debating at university. So it's been a real um, personal and sort of uh, delight in that a lot of my best friends and. Um, uh, in fact, I met my husband through debating. So there's a, there's a lot of joy that comes from it on the social side, but certainly in terms of my professional work, it's something I think I draw on daily. And a lot of those skills I'm really keen to sort of be able to use to help my clients in whatever they're doing as well. Kate, um, how did you come to the point of, of launching your own business? Yeah, so um, for a long time, I had thought about could I specialise down from the roles that I was doing into really just the things I thought I was really good at and really loved? Like, could I bring that Venn diagram together? Mm. And it seemed for a long time that that was, seemed like a pipe dream. You know, that it couldn't be that you could carve out just what you love and get paid for it. You know, nobody has that luxury. So it took me some time to really think about what that would look like and how I would actually go about doing it. Um, and I started thinking really deeply about it probably two years before I actually launched it. And it took quite a bit of um, strength to actually say, yep, I'm going to leave, you know, a, a strict um, job that I had a paycheck for and I could rely on in so many ways. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it's it's certainly in my case proven out that when you can identify a need, and in my case that was at the time companies really needing that sort of strategic brand and communications assistance, plus a real genuine passion for it, that I absolutely love getting on those calls to meet people. I love producing the work. Um, that I think it's I think it's true that that sort of thing can really drive a lot of energy towards something. So that's how it all sort of coalesced in the beginning. Were you, you know, one of the premises for um, for this Brave Feminine Leadership Conversation series, um, mm. you know, there's there's a lot of them. I'm just endlessly curious about this space. But mm. one was around not seeing the dial move in terms of female uh, leaders in kind of key leadership positions. And primarily by that, we're talking about, you know, CFO or key profit and loss positions or, or different spaces like that. Mm. And I just wonder in that context, a lot of the things that have come up in conversations I've had is that there comes a certain point where, um, you know, highly talented females are opting out of that sort of corporate structure in some mm. cases to do their own thing, um, you know, and there's lots of, lots of different avenues open to people. But was that your experience? Like were you opting, were you opting out? Was there a, a reason for wanting to exit the sort of corporate space or was it... I guess that's the tension I'm keen to just understand in your decisions. Yeah, I think it's I think it's hard to disaggregate that actually in hindsight. I think there was probably a lot of threads leading up to it. Uh, one was uh, the autonomy and flexibility that I would have running my own shop is yeah. I think unparalleled. And at that time, I'd had one. I'd had both my children, and so actually, I'd had one child when I started the business, and I knew I was in planning to have another. Yeah. And so that was definitely part of it, which was, could I construct a life that let me sort of leverage all the things that I wanted to do in a way that I wanted to do them? Mm-hmm. So I don't think corporate level or high level roles necessarily offer that. And that's 
for some people, they don't necessarily want that. So that's also fine. Yeah. Um, but for me, that was something I was definitely grappling with. And then the second, so that would, I suppose, be on the life sort of social side of things. And on the um, professional side of things, I knew I particularly loved certain aspects of my roles. So the last two in-house roles I had had, I was the first marketing or comms hire. And I love that initial, how do we build out this architecture? What do we need to be saying? How should we position ourselves? Mm. Um, much more than I enjoyed other parts of my role. Now, it wasn't to say I wasn't good at those other parts of those roles. Crisis comms is, is one of the things that I think I was actually quite good at. I just didn't love it. Yeah. I didn't get the energy from it that I think some people do. Uh, so on the professional side, I really wondered, could I narrow it down to those real areas of, I thought, expertise, but also the ones that gave me a lot of energy. Um, and that, that doesn't happen in-house very often. You know, in-house you're constantly pulled between lots of different poles. And, and again, I spent many years doing that and enjoying it, but I wondered if I could narrow it down, would that give me some sort of ability to thrive more? And that, so that was the thesis, I suppose, going into it. And I think I've proven that out at least to myself that yes you can do the narrowing and certainly it's given me endless joy one of the things that I know you do um, and I mentioned at the start of the interview mm. was um, you run a program called amplify and I just you know I'd love to get into into it with you in terms of what are the core um, you know are there core themes you're helping people with yeah it's such a great question and such a huge huge ground so um it actually, funnily enough, goes back to my debating years, which is a debating is a pretty male dominated um, area. And for a period of my early um, coaching and training, I didn't have a lot of women to look to in that space. So I would just emulate what my male coaches were doing or what male peers were doing. And I would notice in feedback, I would get comments like, oh, too aggressive or you can't be too angry all the time. And the boys were doing exactly the same thing and not getting that feedback. So I think fairly early on, I noticed there is a difference in the way that women and men persuade. Mm. And over time, I think I've spent a lot of time studying and thinking about what are those differences and how can we leverage them to our own benefit? So, for example, we talk about things that are coded male behaviour. So it's not that all men do these, but we think about them coded male. And that's things like having a deeper, louder voice. Um, it's things like, well, he must be authoritative because he sort of said it and banged the table, right? So there's, there's a whole list of things that are male coded. And then the feminine coded are much more around like nurturing, caretaking, collaborative, communal. Um, and we all shift between those all the time. But I think in terms of communication, uh, there's different ways in which we all reach for those. And what I started realising in working with founders and CEOs, particularly in, in the companies I would do strategy work for, were the different ways in which um, women were communicating and still do, um, that I felt was somewhat could undersell what they were doing. They would... Um, be quite different in the way that they were putting forward a company or, or then their own story. So the program was sort of developed as, could we work with a company and their women leaders to really see what is it that 
is, and I call it amplify for the reason of like, where do you find your volume is really high? Where do you feel like you're communicating with impact and power? And where do you feel in an organization that your volume is, the, the volume is turned low, right? Where, where are you finding those challenges come up? And how can we maybe help ameliorate them through lots of different topics, everything from personal presentation, you know, how are you actually presenting all the way through to things like negotiation, being persuasive, um, handling conversations in more adversarial situations, uh, such that you sort of have a bit of a toolkit to draw on in all those situations. So did you change your style? You know, if I go back to noticing that you were getting called out for being aggressive and things like that, were, you know, were those changes that that um, people can make? Are they subtle changes? Are they, you know? Yeah, I, I think so. And look, I'm very careful in sort of talking about change because there's also a, a very relevant sort of school of thought of like, you know, women shouldn't have to change what we're doing. Our workplace should sort of accommodate that. So I certainly don't advocate um, I've got a magic wand and I'm going to sort of make you all over in a different image. It's much more about are there behaviours that might be undermining what you're trying to achieve and is there an authentic way to communicate a sense of yourself um, with power, with authority, mm -hmm. right, and that maybe you hadn't kind of found yet. So I guess what I mean by that is all of the women I work with are hyper-talented, hyper-credentialed, and yet some of them will go into a meeting and say, oh, I'm not sure if I have got this right or I'm not really the expert here, but, or lots and lots of caveats. Could I just take a minute of your time instead of, you know, wanting to actually have a meeting? We don't want to take up the space or the time. And there's a lot of sort of minimising behaviours that we do that are sort of enculturated mm. and I think sometimes it's just about bringing those to the surface and saying let's think about what they do let's think about the impact that they have and you might or might not want to add or remove something from what you're doing to sort of turn those volume knobs up if you like mm. um, so to answer your question more properly about myself yes I did become less aggressive um, I, for a couple of reasons, one being one note all the time when you're presenting is bad. So, you know, being able to harness that aggression or use it um, more effectively at different times. So I think I definitely have it in my toolkit, but I probably don't rely on it anymore as, as much. Um, and secondly, yeah, I did notice that there were different standards for female speakers. So what I'd say is I probably became more of me Mm. Um, rather than a template of my male peers. Mm. And I think that's, that's sort of how I approach the philosophy behind Amplify, which is if you're someone who has a sense of humour, let's see how we can bring that out into your professional self. If you're someone who's really serious, let's see how we bring that out into you. It doesn't, it doesn't matter where your baseline is, but let's make it a version of yourself that you feel really like this is a version of me that I'm excited to communicate outwardly. I love that. I'm just wondering, it just, you know, prompted into my head as you were talking then. Have you had a chance to see any of um, Annabelle Crabbe's misrepresented? Oh, I haven't. It's on my list. I'm so excited to, yeah. Um, I, I, I watched it over the weekend and, um, you know, just loved it and it raised so many questions. But one that just um, jumps to mind as you were speaking was the term um, gender deafness. And what, referring to the fact that, 
Um, a lot of females share this, that they can sit in a room and that they'll put an idea forward and that idea is doesn't appear to have been heard. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, it might be five or ten minutes later, the very same idea is put on the table by a male and all of a sudden it's a wonderful idea. Does that, is that part of the conversations? Do you help people with that? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a very common, um, unfortunately, a very common experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, even sometimes it's just like actually being heard at the table. I think we, we generally have softer voices. We generally sit back in a chair, you know, or we sit really forward and squash our diaphragm. There's lots of even just practical reasons um, that sometimes we're not heard at a table. And then, as you say, there's the extra level of we're not listened to, right, which is as distinct from being heard in the first instance. So uh, that's a very common one. We talk a lot about strategies like amplification, which came out of the Obama White House, which is the idea of another ally in the room, woman or man, saying, actually, I think Melissa raised that point or Melissa, let's get back to what you were saying Mm. and sort of allocating credit to the person who might have made that point. Mm. Um, So I encourage all leaders, whatever whatever position they are in, to be able to do that and sort of confidently advocate for each other because in doing so creates a space that everyone becomes a lot more mindful of, ah, yeah, that was her idea. which I think is really important for lots of reasons. So negotiating. Mm. um, I know from our conversation before that you sit in a a very small percentage of females who can answer this question as a yes. And that is, um, I understand you have negotiated for your salary on your journey. (laughs) I know. I it's so sad that that answer is the way it is, isn't it? That that's an unusual thing to point out. Mm-hmm. I would love to live in a world that that was just a given. We're getting there. We're getting there. <laughs> I think so. I think so. We're on the way. Um, I Yes, I, I do negotiate. So my philosophy on negotiation is that, in fact, if you Google image search the word negotiation, the picture that comes up is the first 20 or so images are men in suits shaking hands across a table, right? So it is coded at the outset. That word is adversarial, it's masculine, it's confrontational. It's things that naturally don't sound fun to engage in, right? And we code, we, we add a layer to that of, well, I don't want them to not like me. I don't want to be difficult. I don't really know them well enough to have this conversation. And of course, this feels like an insurmountable thing, right? Yeah. It feels like I can't be, possibly. All the chestnut, they'd pay me more if I was worth it. I don't even start on imposter syndrome. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's a, so much data around the fact that women negotiate less than men. But the data that I find really interesting is that when we talk about who negotiates best hands down, it's women, but only when they're negotiating on behalf of someone else. Right. So women bosses, for example, will get a much better outcome for their team members the data shows, then a male boss will for their team. Mm. And again, you've got to go back to those behaviours coded as feminine, right? That that's a communal, um, compassionate, caretaking sort of mode coming through. So I think the first step before we even think about negotiating for a salary is thinking about negotiation as an activity that we do all the time. 
we negotiate with our partners. Can you come home at seven instead of eight, right? We negotiate all sorts of things in our daily life. And we don't think of them as like a capital N negotiation because we think of them as conversations. Mm. But I'm a really big proponent of thinking about that all the time. I need somebody, I need more resources for my team. I need to take a day off. I need to, all these requests are in fact negotiations, right? I'm showing you this and I'm giving you that in return. Mm -hmm. So trying to get out of the idea that negotiating only happens when you go for a job or buy a car is a really first important step. And then it's about thinking, how can I negotiate in a way that feels authentic to me? right? So for me, that has always been, I'm going to be super honest about where everything is. I'm going to be very, very transparent. I'm going to be very collaborative. So you might, in my case, I would use language sort of as, um, thanks so much for the opportunity. This looks like an incredibly exciting role. I can't wait to get started. On the tactics, the the floor that I need to reach is X. is there any way you can help me get there? What can we do to get there? I'll sign today, Mm. right? I'm ready. So there's automatically a sense of transparency, of of community around that and collaboration. I'm not being, quote, difficult. I'm just telling you this is my situation and I'm ready to get moving. I'm not trying to stall. Um, What about when you're already in a job? So that's a uh, point, but what about when you're already in a job? That's a really different enterprise (laughs) you have obviously less leverage right Mm -hmm. in the sense that you're already in and you've already acceded to a number but you have more leverage in that if you're valuable they'll want to be able to keep you Mm -hmm. so I'm not personally a fan of like well I've gone out and and got three other offers you know so gun to your head I don't think that that works particularly well and asterisks it might work for you so open to interpretation but it's not my I find that a little bit sort of bullying. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the best way to do it is to know the market value and to understand what other people are getting, mm-hmm. to know your own value and to be able to put together in some ways a, a, a data sheet. These are all the accomplishments I have got and this is why I think I'm ready for that promotion or this next phase. Mm-hmm. So make it about the facts not I feel, not so-and-so got a raise, I didn't, right? It's not about anybody else. And if they come back with, well, so-and-so's been here longer than you, or those, I'm not here to talk about that. What I'm here to talk about is this trajectory and how we're going to get there. So framing that discussion as we are going to get there, this is just about the timeline rather than can we get there or not, mm-hmm. I think is one of those strategic shifts that really helps those conversations move along. Did you have a point in your career, I remember you sharing something about negotiating for what your husband was getting paid or something like that at some point? Yeah, yeah. I was asked in one negotiation, and this should have been a red flag actually to not take this job, but at one point I was told um, to, we we don't have people ask for more than this. We, we're not a team who, who does that, which again is a red flag of why not, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, what am I joining? And then I was also asked, um, well, what does my husband make? And uh, which I thought was, it actually genuinely took me some time to work out why that was even relevant. <laughs> and in fact, it turns out it's not relevant. So 
I often think that when you, if you get a very strange response to a negotiation, if that's before you've joined a company, that's a great reason to question, you know what, this might not actually be the place I want to be collaborating with these people and working alongside. If you have someone who responds in a compassionate, I get it, I totally understand, let me see what I can do, that's the team personally that I'd be wanting to join, right? That someone who was trying to work for me and advocate for me at the outset. So you'll get strange questions and, again, use those as a litmus test for is this something that I kind of want to, I'm going to, this is not the last difficult conversation I'm going to have with this person. It's the first. So, so let's get this going well, and then see if we can move forward together such that we are honest and good communicators and it facilitates a level of trust um, and respect, I think. I'm curious to know, did you answer the question when they asked? About my husband's salary? I said, I don't think that's relevant to this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. not not judging your response I was just curious to know yeah honestly I was so shocked I, I didn't really ha- I, I mean I, I've thought of hundreds of better responses since <laughs> as you can imagine but I, in the moment I was I was breathtaking so uh, it was just more of a uh, I'm just going to put that one to the side thank you and I think to, to be honest they were slightly uh, embarrassed or that was a bit of chagrin when they realized what they had actually asked absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah. So um, I would love your perspective on, you know, we're not seeing that needle move fast enough with regards yeah. to key leadership positions. Um, I don't know how fast enough is good enough, but it's more the point that it's stalled um, mm. in terms of progress. What's your perspective on that, Kate? Oh, I wish I had the answer. My perspective, I suppose, comes from a working parent's perspective which is that structural institutions are badly designed for women who want to have a family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the fact that school finishes at 3 o'clock is a bit ridiculous, right? And it's not to say that school should finish at 8 p.m. It's just to say that things are not set up. Mm-hmm. There's still a lot of things institutionally and structurally that are not ready um, in that capacity. Childcare is not subsidised in a way that it needs to be. Um, so in, in certainly in terms of that working family journey, that's not set up, I think, for success um, mm. for a lot of women. For some women it is. But I think when we look across the spectrum, there's lots of reasons why people might leave for family reasons in particular. Um, the second is I think that those structures favour um, modes of working that we're seeing, I think, with COVID being in flux. So things like FaceTime at the office it's not reasonable, parent or no, to not be able to go to the bank or the post office in your workday if you yeah. need to get that done, right? Yeah. So it's it's not reasonable to say you couldn't work from somewhere else on a Friday if that helped you out in your life um, or that you couldn't go to a medical appointment, et cetera. And I think we're realising that, that this concept of FaceTime or being, you know, on is pretty flexible and different. And I'm, I'm hopeful that COVID has kind of brought that to the fore a little bit and people are understanding that there's different ways of working but I think it's the inflexibility of those institutions that is making people men and women actually decide that they might not be for me I think the drop-off in female leadership is for lots of different internal reasons at different firms I see a lot of toxic cultures I see a lot of um, psychologically unsafe environments where people think I don't need to be you know, amongst this, I, I don't want to fight these battles anymore. And 
they leave because they want they want better they want a different way of of working Mm. Uh, so I think there's a lot of different threads kind of rolled into one uh, and many more that I haven't listed here Mm. do you think um you know I'm curious as to uh, I think it's so important we keep having these conversations and diversity is a really broad subject the Mm. lens that I'm interested in is more of a gender lens Mm. you know what what questions should we be asking about diversity Oh, that's such a good one. I mean, I think most people realise or understand that diverse teams have better outcomes. I I think that's becoming more of a fact um, for so many reasons and all the data points to that being the case. Mm. So it's actually a better business decision to have diverse teams. It's actually saves you time and money. We look at all the launches, particularly in my world in terms of strategy and in business, we look at all the launches that you haven't asked a woman about, for example, or you haven't asked a person of colour about before you launched and there's a huge error and there's a lot that goes into course correcting the brand or the brand damage, the blowback. Mm. Um, So had you sat down with any number of different constituencies, it might be different. Um, I always remember that my Apple Watch, or the, the, I had a, a smart watch at some point that when I would go walking with a stroller, it would say I was cycling <laughs> and there was no way to say I was walking with my hand on a stroller, right? Had you asked a mother to wear that device, you would have had a really different outcome. So I think the conversation is shifting from should we have diverse teams to it's probably a good thing. The next part of the think where we're focused on now is how do we get there and I think when you hear pipeline problem that's Mm. wrong there's no pipeline problem we're all here and ready it's just about imagining people looking a little bit different than maybe what you had in mind Mm. and that works across all lenses gender included Um, and, and and really thinking well those those experiences may not be mine or they may not be recognizable to me in my sort of traditional pattern recognition but what might that person be able to bring that I don't have that's I think the key just as we look for well I'm more strategic I need somebody to help me on the operations etc I'm more white and I need somebody to help me out from this different perspective or I'm a man and I need you know a a female voice on my team etc I think that that's where we're the new sort of frontier that we're thinking about. Kate, how important have kind of networks and mentors been on your journey? Hugely. Uh, I am really averse, I think, to the, uh, the word networking. Yeah. I find it, uh, I, I sort of imagine it to be a bit of a sort of smarmy, you know, standing around at a cocktail party that I don't want to be at <laughs> kind of endeavour. I immediately uh, want to Google the image for networking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, that's exactly what it brings to mind it feels a bit yucky uh but the people that I have met that I have loved and learned from if I think of them as my network uh I I think that's really been mainly the joy of work for me Mm. is finding people who are exceptional at what they do and becoming friends and trying to learn from them if not friends close colleagues you know and trying to see wow I love the way they solve that problem and certainly those people in my life have been the ones that I've been able to be friends with or have mentored me either intentionally or accidentally uh, have been real guiding forces in people that I would ring and run a decision past, 
um, people that I would trust a really clear judgment on, on something I wanted to do or a decision I wanted to make. Uh, I, 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 they wouldn't influence that decision to the extent that I wouldn't change my behaviour, but I love to have their input into how I'm thinking about something. And they may well change my mind on, on what I'm going to do, but that would be because of I, I trust them in, implicitly as well. And has that, have they been informal relationships or formal relationships? All informal. Um, I, I'd say that there are a number of people, debating coaches, ex-colleagues, ex-bosses, uh, people that I've, I've sort of struck up an affinity with. And I think it's important to say here peers as well as seniors. You know, peers are really important in your mentor sort of uh exploration of yourself because oftentimes you're coming at it with a different way of giving each other feedback or hey I love the way you did that in that meeting or you know what next time I'd think about doing a b or c you can kind of come at as much learning from your peers as from folks who are ahead of you mm. um, and probably I'd say again as a manager right I, I learned a lot from the people that I've managed over the years about my own management about them about us together uh, so I think I've sort of sought out those opportunities informally, but really gratefully. One of the, um, you know, just joys of doing these conversations, and I think it really resonated with people last time around, was kind of seeing that, you know, I'm speaking to all these people that have ticked all these incredible boxes in terms of mm. success. and um, But all of us have those moments where doubts come up and, you know, you referenced imposter syndrome before and it, it, it could be that, um, mm. you know, but it's certainly that voice inside that's sort of maybe holding you back from doing something or taking a step. Have there been points where you've had to overcome that sort of voice? And, you know, if you hear a voice, what's it saying to you and how do you, how do you use that? Absolutely. That voice is probably the loudest sometimes I think for all of us at different times you know we, we remember the one negative piece of feedback and not the 50 pieces of positive don't we so yeah. that that's a really common uh, in my experience with talking to folks I think that's really common um, I have learned to address that voice and actually try and have a conversation with it so really say when that voice of like, you can't do it, it's scary, it's going to be a big audience, or this is a big client, what do you think you're doing? Or whatever that doubt looks like to different people, but certainly for myself, I say, thanks so much for alerting me <laughs> to the fact you're right, this is big, this is scary, I really appreciate you flagging it. I've thought about it, I'm still going to do it. But thanks again for reaching out with your thoughts. <laughs> so kind of treating it as like a, an external um, thing. I found when I've ignored the voice and just tried to battle through, for me, it made my anxiety worse, right? Because I would then be anxious about being anxious. <laughs> so I would just now take it on and say, great call, this is scary. And here's what we're going to do about it. So sort of present back a plan to the voice. And it's a pretty good way of making at least my voice sit quietly for a little while. So you, uh, I'm circling back to your debating skills again. So you, <laughs> using your debating skills, structuring a logical argument and using it back against what is just your warning system that there's something you need to be alert to, right? Well, for me, facts in those situations, facts are very compelling. Mm -hmm. So, well, what are the other times you've done this and succeeded? 
here, here, here. Um, well, chances are I'll probably do well this time, right? Facts help ground you in a reality rather than sort of an imagined catastrophe. So we can all imagine catastrophe really easily. And I think in some ways that's a really helpful thing to have in your pocket too. We need to think about what are those bad things so we're alive to them and can sort of mitigate them. But I try to think about, well, what's the best that could happen? If I'm worrying about what the worst is, what happens if I succeed? And that framework is so much more exciting and empowering to think about for me because it gives me that sort of trajectory or way forward, which would be like, wow, well, that would be really cool. And that brings a lot of energy, I think, to whatever you're doing. It doesn't mean you shouldn't think about the pitfalls that you might experience along the way. I'm, I'm a big on understanding those and, as I say, mitigating, mitigating against them or, or trying to kind of prepare for them. But I think imagining catastrophe only sort of leads to uh, paralysis, mm. right, that you it's too much to take on so we just don't do it. Um, I love that question around what's the best that could happen because that automatically puts you into a space where you're you're also you're you're imagining what success might look like and yes. feel like and you know there's so much research that says our brain can't tell the difference between you imagining a situation and you actually being in it. So absolutely, uh, yeah, it's really important to have a feeling of it. What, what, what might it feel like when I walk off that stage having delivered something, even if it's 5% better than I think I can do now? Mm. What could that feel like to me? Mm. What does it feel like when I uh, sit down after that small presentation with a client, for example, um, and, and sort of really understanding, ah, that, that's where I want to be headed? Mm. I think it naturally brings some muscle memory when you actually do it. That, as you say, the brain is very suggestible in that way. Uh, and even if it doesn't, it just makes the process of anticipating something a lot less dire. When I ask you about your most vulnerable moment, what springs to mind for you? Oh, lots. <laughs> I had uh, last year was probably uh, on a personal level, one of them. I had uh, an upcoming surgery that I knew was quite big mm. and I knew would have quite significant recovery and rehab. And as somebody, and it's interesting, this is brave feminine leadership, as someone who I think self-identifies as brave, I found this especially confronting because I was really scared. Mm -hmm. I just kept feeling scared about it. And I didn't feel brave at all. I just kept thinking this is going to be really hard. It's going to be painful. It's going to be hard to recover from. I don't want to do it. I have to do it. And I'm, I circle back to being scared again. And I was actually talking to my therapist, who's a I almost said friend there. I, I think he's amazing. And I explained this. I said, well, I'm actually just really annoyed. Like I'm supposed to be brave and I'm feeling only fear. And he sort of smiled in a way and he said, do you think warriors in battle, you know, when they ran into a battle, do you think they didn't feel scared? Mm. And I suddenly kind of put together that fear is actually a necessary precondition for bravery, mm. right? We, we can't we can't be brave unless there's something to sort of overcome or to, um, uh, yeah, to overcome. And 
that made the fear seem totally in context. For one, it was fairly rational in fairness, like it was scary. But, but secondly, it made it like, oh, I'm on this bravery journey. I'm scared now, which means I can be brave. And it sort of unlocked this new way of framing it up for myself, which is like, oh, thank goodness, I'm back to feeling like myself. I can take this on. Yes, all those things are still true about it. It's going to be unpleasant, but I'll be brave facing it. And I think in that respect, that really changed uh, the way I've actually seen a lot of things and, and a lot of the way that I think I coach when I'm running programs is to think about a lot of this, um, a lot of our own sort of architecture of how we think about engaging with the world is to say, I can't be scared or I can't be vulnerable or I can't feel anxious. No, no, no. And we want to put those to one side. Mm. And I think as I've grown older, I'm learning that those are really important things to validate with oneself. Yes, you are right. That's happening. It's not pleasant, but like, let's think about it and talk about it and sit with it. And then sometimes, and not always, but sometimes they enable a new framework of whether it's bravery or a feeling of fearlessness to be able to say, well, even though I'm anxious about delivering this presentation or even though I'm scared about this thing, I'm going to do it anyway. Mm. And I think that's really quite um, transformative or it has been for me that, it, again, it doesn't change the, the facts of what's going to happen. And sometimes we're faced with really quite awful things to sort of have to grapple with. Mm. But I think if the frame, at least for me, is one of a brave one, uh, that's really changed the way I think I experience the more negative moments. Do you, um, if I throw the terms at you, confidence and courage, what, what comes up? Courage, I think... Um, Courage, I think a lot about in terms of my children, I suppose, in that I'm always kind of coaching them around, um, give it a go, just try, you know, and it's really, it's really wonderful to be courageous. I don't care about the outcome. I don't mind if you win it or lose it or, you know, fall over. It's just about giving it a go. And I think that is something that's quite natural in childhood and we lose it you know, we're less, we're less likely to want to get on a bike for a first time at 40 yeah. than we were when we were four. And I kind of think a lot about as I'm saying things to them, how relevant some of those things are to us in the professional world as well, mm -hmm. that, that courage is something we have to practice and we have to be doing all the time, even in little ways, to sort of teach ourselves it's still okay, we can still wobble, you know, we can still make a mistake, we can call it out, we can own it, we can move on, it's not the end of the world. And I think that resilience is something that especially high achievers can lose a little bit because they can narrow down to, well, I only want to do things where I know I'll get a good outcome. Mm. And that's a really limiting self-belief, I think. And it's definitely one that I've embodied at different times in my life. But when we start realizing I'm terrible at this this is great you know this is this is it's really good for me to be having a moment of failure because it's going to enable me to look at things in a really different way or teach me something I hadn't come up against so you're looking at courage almost as a muscle 
in terms of, you know, keep using it. What's next on your list in terms of uh, the next courageous thing you're going to do? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I haven't thought about a courage list, but I obviously need to write one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I do think it's a muscle. And I think... uh, it's really important, you know, they say, well, you'll do one thing a day that scares you. Well, I think that's a little bit impossible sometimes. <laughs> sometimes the days are just getting stuff done. But uh, certainly going into, I suppose my courage is I think I'm learning slowly to be more flexible mm-hmm. and to see that sometimes opportunities come that don't necessarily look like they fit a certain Um, box or a certain sort of way that I might have thought about something but actually there's genius and power in sort of exploring those and and brainstorming something new or coming up with a different thought Um, and it's the flexibility I think to have for me to think about that has been really quite joyful. You've spent a lot of time um you know, probably being in situations where you haven't been in the traditional box, you know, as, mm-hmm. as an Australian in America, I can think, as mm-hmm. started off the conversation saying, um, you know, in, in the tech space, but not really a techie. Yes, yes. You know, you've got a lot of those different experiences. Um, you know, did they teach you anything? Um, you know, do you, do you look to be part of those environments where you're not necessarily um, the same as others? That's a good question. I don't think I naturally seek them out, but certainly in my work, that's often where I am. Uh, so maybe uh, maybe there's something going on there that I need to, to dig into myself. Uh, I think difference can be really challenging for lots of reasons. Uh, certainly, you know, I don't maybe look like someone who they're expecting or I dress in a different way. Maybe I'm more casual than a, you know, a bank or something when I'm talking to different sorts of different types of institutions. Yeah. Uh, so there's, there's that. I found great pleasure actually in leaning into the difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the beginning of my career, I remember thinking, I'm going to have to learn to code. Like how, how am I possibly going to talk to these people? You know, I'm going to have to just become an engineer, you know, to do all of these things. And when I moved to the US, I remember thinking, am I going to have to Americanize a little bit more? You know, do I change my intonation? Do I get rid of some expressions that I say? And I really, I thought long and hard about that. And certainly there are some expressions you just have to get rid of because no one understands you. (laughs) Um, But it actually became a bit of a superpower because over there, particularly people would say, oh, yes, you're the Australian or I remember you or they had different expectations for a foreign person. You could, I found I could get away with being really much more honest Mm. and say like, oh, sorry, I'm Australian. We just call it as it is, you know, and and I would be able to have these really sort of straightforward kind of um, conversations on the West Coast that I think are sometimes shrouded in a lot of politeness that I just honestly didn't understand. So in some ways, I think that difference has been really exciting. Um, And I think it comes with a sense sometimes of humility. Like I don't go into a company of science PhDs and pretend I know more than them. Mm. I'm very much learning to get my head around. Are we talking about, you know, printing, bioprinting cells in 3D? Like I don't know anything about that. And that's actually why I'm really good at the work I do is because I just look at it logically. Okay, this is what you're trying to achieve. These are the things that you have in your arsenal. This is how we have to strategically set that up such that you're mitigating against certain risks, et cetera. Mm. And this is the story we can wrap around it. 
So it is my difference that I'm not under all of the weight of that detail that I can kind of come at it in a much more clear way. And, and the feedback I usually get is, oh my gosh, we've been struggling to articulate that. Thank you. Right. So it's, it's not that difference needs to be a sort of sword, right, of, of haha, I'm different. But much more, I think, um, it's much more subtle than that, which is I'd love to be able to add what I have to what you're already doing and help you achieve something a little bit different, which I suppose links back a bit to the diversity conversation totally. as well, right? Yeah, totally. Kate, I would love to ask you a question that I ask everybody in the series, which is, and we've touched on, on bits of it today, but mm. from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership look like and does it need to change? I've thought about this because I've listened to some other episodes and wondered how would I answer that? I think leadership is such a personal question and I don't think there's a template that's going to work for everybody mm -hmm. and I say that because I work with leaders who are shy who are extroverted who are energized who are calm and all of them have their own patterns of doing it and then I think you layer in feminine and that again gives you a whole gradient sort of that people self-identify along so I suppose the brave part I think the other two sections are very personal and I wouldn't want to sort of influence those. I would encourage people to find where they sit comfortably on those um, spectrum. I think the brave part is a really exciting acknowledgement that, as I said before, bravery requires fear. Mm -hmm. And that is, I think, a really enabling lens in any type of leadership position. And I, I use that really broadly, whether you're a CEO or a junior manager, right? You're, you're in control of how you lead your own self in that organisation. Mm. And knowing that everybody is facing something they don't want to deal with or they are afraid of at any level and sort of making that much more normalised, I think we have a tendency, and I certainly have in my career, to look upward and think well they must have it all figured out and I think the most lovely thing about working with leaders is that I realize nobody has it figured out mm. and in fact we're all kind of grappling with something difficult and, and I often ask the question when I'm talking to folks well what's keeping you up at night at the moment like what's the, the thing you'd love to be able to fix and the answer is usually everything everything keeps me up at night right like I'm, I'm a startup founder what am I not worried about yeah. So normalising a little bit of that discussion that nobody's got it, quote, figured out. Um, we're all kind of in that process of learning and working it out. But I think for me, at least, the bravery side of things gives you a bit of licence mm. to have your P plates on, right? We're, we've got B, maybe B plates for bravery, you know. We're, we're all trying to figure it out as we go and, and giving ourselves the opportunity to use it as a muscle, as I said, I think is a really great practice. I just love that. I can now see, um, you know, people in the audience. I mean, I think that would be a wonderful way to, you want to exercise that courage muscle. We'll pop your B plates on <laughs> and, uh, and, and off you go. So Kate, it's been an absolute pleasure um, as it always is when we connect. Um, oh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Having a conversation. Um, congratulations on, on your career and on Hedgehog and Fox and the Amplified program. I know that they're all, um, already successful and are going to continue to be for a long time to come. So it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much, Melissa. It's been an absolute delight. 
Hello there. If you're enjoying the podcast and would love to accelerate your own growth and leadership, then head to bravefeminineleadership.com forward slash brave tips for your gift from me, where I've captured all of the amazing tips and themes that came out of these conversations. I hope they help you feel your brave rising.